You are listening to a Natural Products Insider podcast. With Sandy Almendares, Editor-in-Chief. Hi, and welcome to a Supply Side West edition of the Healthy Insider podcast. I'm Sandy, and on the phone, I've got Josh Long, who is our legal and regulatory editor. Hi, Josh. Hi, Sandy. Good morning. We are here to talk about trends that Josh uh, experienced during Supply Side West 2018. We tried to record this live from the show, but uh, it was just too busy for both of us, and the podcast booth uh, was booming with uh, editors recording podcasts. So we are in our home offices now the week after Supply Side uh, to go over um, some trends. So the first one I want to talk about, Josh, is CBD, because I couldn't have any conversation I felt at the show without someone mentioning CBD and just how fantastic the workshop was and all these new companies that are getting in into the uh, CBD market. So, Josh, what, what were the big takeaways from there? I think at a really high level, it's just there's just as you said, there's just a ton of buzz around CBD. People are extremely excited about it. The what I would consider the mainstream dietary supplement industry is taking a serious look at it. Um, there are uh, there there continue to be um, you know significant regulatory and legal challenges, but notwithstanding that, um, everybody sees the opportunity. They see the tremendous consumer interest and demand for CBD and quote hemp extracts, uh, full spectrum hemp extracts from the, from the hemp plant. And so people are just really charged up and they're really excited about it. And no matter what the regulatory and legal challenges are, I think there's a number of what I would, what I would call you know, somewhat responsible players that are just saying, we're gonna move forward and we're gonna do whatever we can um, within the current regulatory framework to put out a good product. So if you could give a brief overview of what those uh, legal challenges are that these companies are facing. Well, there's a, I mean, one challenge that they've been facing for a long time is, uh, you know, disputes with the uh, DEA, the Drug Enforcement Administration, over CBD and cannabidiol and whether it's an actual marijuana extract or whether based on the 2014 Farm Bill passed by President Barack Obama, um, certain uh, CBD grown in accordance with uh, research programs carried out under federal law are exempt from the Controlled Substances Act. There's just a lot of ambiguity still years later after the Farm Bill was passed over whether CBD is actually a controlled substance. Now, people like Bob Hoban, a reputable attorney in Denver, will say absolutely CBD is not a controlled substance. It's never been scheduled. But there's just still a lot of ambiguity over that point. That's going to be cleared up, provided the Congress passes a farm bill, 2018 farm bill, um, that includes language that would basically uh, say to the DEA, hands off, hemp-derived CBD is not a controlled substance. And that's going to really create a tremendous amount of interest, I think, from the investment community in CBD products and open up a whole new industry for the supplement industry. But there's a big caveat, and the caveat is that the FDA Food and Drug Administration still says CBD can't be sold in a conventional food or a dietary supplement due to a, uh, a provision in the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act. So even if the uh, Farm Bill does pass with the hemp language I discussed, there's still the issue of FDA and where that goes, who knows. 
So I've heard from smart attorneys who represent CBD companies, and they've got some pretty compelling arguments as to why FDA is wrong. Can you give a, a brief overview of, of what they're saying? Yeah, so basically what FDA is saying with respect to dietary supplements, because CBD has been studied as a, uh, as, as a drug and it's been the subject of, of, quote, substantial clinical trials that have been made public and and CBD wasn't marketed as a dietary supplement before those uh, factors were met, it's precluded from being sold in a dietary supplement. That's a provision that's in the Dietary Supplement Health and Education Act. Um, I guess it was put in there to protect the investments of the pharmaceutical industry. You certainly, it does make sense from a logical standpoint that you wouldn't want a pharmaceutical company spending hundreds of millions of dollars on a drug, and then all of a sudden, you know, the natural products industry comes in there and uh, selling the same thing. I think that was the idea of that provision. But this case, uh, this ambiguity over CBD kind of highlights the fact that the what GW Pharmaceuticals, the drug company, is selling is perhaps very distinguishable from what natural product companies are selling in terms of, quote, so-called hemp extracts that contain CBD and other cannabinoids. But I think one of the arguments is what I just said, that it's distinguishable that GW Pharmaceutical, which is the drug company, whose uh, CBD medicine, Epidiolex, was recently approved by FDA, that that medicine is distinguishable, sufficiently distinguishable from the CBD or hemp extract products on the market sold by natural product companies, and therefore that drug provision that FDA is relying on doesn't apply. And consequently, FDA is just flat out wrong. That's one argument. Another argument made by a lawyer at the uh, workshop that we uh, had at Splyside West is that the clinical trials were not quote substantial, and therefore it does, and therefore that clause in the in the law isn't triggered. Now other lawyers will tell you that's a weak argument, but I think the point is there's a lot of arguments to contest FDA's position, and we both know that the federal government moves at a snail's pace. So whether they'll take action against CBD companies in the natural product space in the next two, three, four, five years over this issue remains to be seen. And I think another argument, not uh, that it's a direct um, counterpoint to FDA, but is that uh, CBD appears to be safe. I mean, we know CB Sciences this year got, uh, got their self-affirmed grass, they're generally recognized as safe, which shows that uh, experts agree that an ingredient is safe for use in foods, which is even a higher bar of safety than for supplements. And without a large safety issue, um, FDA is unlikely to act. I and mean, FDA has sent some warning letters, but those are for egregious claims in this space and not necessarily for the, the use of the, of the ingredient in general. And um, even though FDA has said that, uh, you know, this is an illegal ingredient and folks should not be using it in supplements, they have yet to do anything, um, uh, you know, beyond warning letters in this, this space. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, let's look, and let's just remember that FDA is a public health agency. They're not their job. Their main mission is not to protect the interests of the pharmaceutical industry. I have nothing against the pharmaceutical industry. I'm just saying that's not their that's not their main job. Their main job is to protect the public health. And like you said, we haven't had any big safety concerns around CBD. Now, if there was a safety concern around CBD, that could uh, result in a huge disruption to the industry beyond the company that was targeted. But we haven't seen that so far. And perhaps that's a testament to the fact that CBD really isn't all that dangerous. And let's just hope it stays that way. All right. right. So it wasn't it wasn't all just CBD, although it kind of seemed like it. But uh, you were also 
the moderator of a workshop on state actions with you know legislation and litigation, Prop 65, state attorneys general. So what what do you want to talk about in this space? Well, we'll just keep it keep it brief. So there was a, we we talked about a, a few different issues. One, state legislation. Number two, the role of trade associations in uh, litigation and and what role they can play in weighing in with the court on uh, how a particular court ruling uh, or position taken by a company would affect the supplement industry. We talked about state AGs, and we talked about that uh, very complicated, uh, obscure law known as Prop 65. As far as state legislation, I think uh, the point made by Dan Fabrican of the Natural Products Association is bills move fast at the state capitals. you got to remain vigilant all the time. States are a lot more nimble than the federal government with their legislation. And also, uh, state lawmakers, they can become more savvy with their bill language in the next session as they learn more about the federal regulatory regime governing supplements. So even if a state lawmaker isn't educated and introduces some language, let's say, to ban um, weight management or weight loss supplements for people under the age of 18, as they become more educated, their language, their legislative language will change, and theoretically, they could garner more support. Uh, from their constituents because they're more uh, sophisticated about uh, how the industry is regulated. As far as the uh, Council for Responsible Nutrition, Steve Mister talked about amicus briefs, which are friend of the court briefs filed with, with uh, courts in, uh, in lawsuits, and uh, CRN's been really involved in this area. And In fact, in one case before a district court, a uh, judge actually quoted from CRN's amicus brief so I think the message there is that the industry, these trade associations, can definitely have uh, a substantial impact on on a judge uh, in a case that involves the dietary supplement industry, even if that trade association isn't a party to the lawsuit. Uh, as far as state AGs, um, you know, since the Schneiderman investigation several years ago, it's been more quiet there on that front. Obviously, with the supplement industry. But Richard Lawson, a former uh, consumer protection state AG official in Florida, made the point that uh, if there is a perceived um, gap in federal enforcement or FDA enforcement, for example, the state AGs will step in. And so just because they've been quiet with our industry doesn't mean they'll remain so. Well, that is certainly a lot of action within the state, um, but specifically in one state, California uh, has has a, a law on the books. It's been on the books for a long time, but still uh, gives headaches to this industry. And um, even though it's just in one state, it kind of affects all products that a, a supplement company manufactures that they're selling in the United States because uh, California is such a large market. So, Josh, can you talk about California's Proposition 65? Yeah, most people or a lot of people in our industry certainly that are selling in California are familiar with it. It's known officially as the Safe Drinking Water and Toxic Enforcement Act of 1986. It was adopted as a ballot initiative uh, that year. And um, it protects the state's drinking water uh, sources from being contaminated with chemicals known to cause cancer, birth defects, or other reproductive harm. And it requires businesses to inform Californians about exposures to such chemicals. My understanding is there's about 900 chemicals on a list today that's kept by the state of California. So if your product contains one of these 900 chemicals, then you could be potentially affected by Prop 65 and not in a good way. It's a very, I don't know a terrible lot about the law. It's what I do know, what I can say with with assurance is it's a very complicated law 
And if you're somebody and you've received a notice of violation or you're involved in a Prop 65 litigation, you really need to hire an attorney that is someone who practices in that area. Somebody you don't want to, you know, you don't want your wills and trust attorney to be, you know, getting involved in a Prop 65 case. It's it's very nuanced, very complicated. Um, and we talked about some of those nuances. Um, and it's also worth mentioning that recently amended regulations for a clear and reasonable warning took effect in late August of 2018. So that's something that people affected by Prop 65 obviously are aware of or certainly need to be aware of. The other thing we talked about is just the fact that the vast, vast, vast majority of people that get served with notices, uh, notices of violation under Prop 65 settle. And the reason is simple, it's just so expensive to litigate these cases. You know, let's say, Someone says you violated Prop 65 and you take it to court and you hire a big law firm out of California that knows what they're doing and you shell out hundreds of thousands of dollars in attorney's fees and expert costs. And at the end of the day, the judge says, you win. Well, is that really a victory? You just spent $400,000 um, on, on fees and costs. And so that's why 99.9% .9 of cases, according to Anthony Cortez, simply settle because it's just so expensive. Um, and that's why Dan Fabricant of NPA says the law really needs to be reformed. And if people in the supplement industry really have a problem with Prop 65 and thinks it doesn't make a lot of sense, you know, they need to, you know, lobby local lawmakers and make a stink about it because otherwise the industry, the food industry and others are just going to have to continue to deal with this very burdensome law. Well, I know that um, they've been dealing with it for as long as I've been in the industry. And I guess as, as long as it stays on the books, it's going to be a... Uh, uh, a challenge to navigate. Thank you so much, Josh, for joining me and of course for uh, being our expert on the ground on all things legal matters at Supply Side West. For more award-winning podcasts from industry experts, go to insider.com and click in the podcast section. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts by searching Healthy Insider Podcast. Hit subscribe to never miss an episode. To join the conversation about the supplement industry, leave a comment on the podcast's Twitter, Facebook, or SoundCloud accounts.